0: Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray now for your spirit to open up our eyes and open up our ears to see and to hear your truth in the word. We pray, Lord, that we would receive uh, your scriptures with hearts that are open to um, obey, to believe. Uh, to submit ourselves, ultimately, to what you have to say to us. So thank you, Lord, for this word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, this morning we are starting a new sermon series in the book of Malachi. We're calling it Exposing the Dangers of Spiritual Apathy. Because if there's one phrase that best describes the people of God during the time of Malachi, it, it seriously would be spiritual apathy. As we're going to see, they they had yet to abandon religious duties. They still dutifully worshipped at the temple. They, They brought their sacrifices, but they were largely apathetic. They were without feeling or emotion. They were indifferent, disinterested, just going through the motions. Their heart wasn't in it. And this apathy seemed to stem from a growing, gnawing sense of doubt over God's love for them. So when you feel unloved by God, neglected by God, ignored by God, it tends to lead towards apathy towards God. You feel less love for him, and this becomes easier to neglect him or, or to ignore him. And that's, that's one of the root causes of spiritual apathy, a growing, gnawing sense that God doesn't love me. Or if he does, he probably loves me less than others. So it's to these doubts that Malachi begins his book with an affirmation of God's love for Israel. But immediately we're going to see that love is questioned. How so? What evidence is there that God actually loves us? Now before we look at our text, I think it's going to benefit us to step back and to consider uh, the overall background and context of this book. First off, Though Malachi is the last Old Testament book in your Bible, you need to know that that doesn't mean it was written chronologically last. In fact, in ancient Hebrew Bibles, which Jesus would have been familiar with, 2 Chronicles was actually the last book. And it wasn't until the Old Testament was translated into the Greek that it was the, uh, the Septuagint, it was only then that the more familiar ordering of the books was established where Malachi shows up at the end. But having said that, even though Malachi technically may not have been written last, it, it was one of the last of the Old Testament books written. Because based on its content, we know that Malachi lived during a time after the exiles had returned from Babylon so Jerusalem by this time had been restored and the temple had been rebuilt and Judah was a nation once more. So most scholars date Malachi to the late 5th century B.C. This is around the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. And it's because of similar issues that do uh, show up in all three books, similar issues facing the post-exilic community. So it suggested that Malachi must have been written right before Nehemiah, right before Nehemiah's reforms were put into place, which are recorded in his book. So by dating the book within that time period, it explains why the Israelites had grown so apathetic towards God. Because by Malachi's day, Israel was a mere shadow of its former self. Exiles had returned, but a vast majority had not. The temple had been rebuilt, but It paled in comparison to the original. And they were a nation again, sure, but they were merely a vassal state to the greater Persian Empire. So while most Old Testament prophets, they operated and they ministered during periods marked by great change, by by social and political upheaval, Malachi, on the other hand, he ministered during a period of monotonous waiting. 60 to 70 years had passed since the temple had been reconstructed. And yet there was still no evidence of God filling it with his glory or or turning the temple into a beacon of hope for the nations. God's people were not prospering in a land flowing with milk and honey. No, instead they had to endure a wearing time of, of poverty and foreign domination. So religious duty continued but without any fervor, without any hope. Instead, they were full of questions. Is God still committed to his covenant? Is he going to protect us and prosper us? Is he going to bring justice? Because it really seems like our enemies are the ones who keep prospering over us. So what's, what's the point then? Serving God seems vain. That's, that's a Uh, an an actual um, quote that comes up later on in chapter 3, verse 14, where they are questioning whether it's even, even worth it to serve God. Does worshiping him, sacrificing to him, serving God even matter? Do we even matter to God? Now, it's into these doubts the word of the Lord comes to Israel by Malachi, and he says, I have loved you says the Lord. Throughout the book, God's going to confront their spiritual apathy as manifested by their conduct and their, their, their covenant unfaithfulness. But before he confronts and exposes their spiritual apathy, the Lord starts off this book by reminding them of his sovereign electing love. You see, for ancient Israel to be in the right frame of mind, or really the right frame of heart, to hear the rest of this prophecy, and the same goes for modern listeners like us, three things need to happen. We need to first understand this concept of God's electing love. Second, we need to cherish God's electing love. And third, to share God's electing love. So first, we need to understand God's electing love. Now, to speak of God's love may be familiar to us, but what's his electing love? What's that referring to? Well, electing love is referring to God's love freely bestowed, graciously bestowed, and mysteriously bestowed to undeserving sinners like us without a view to our worth or merit. This love is distinct from God's general love for all persons in the entire world. God's electing love is the particular love that he set upon Israel, choosing or electing them and entering into a covenant with them as distinct from all the other peoples on the earth. It's the love with which he loves the church, his bride whom he chose and he covenanted with. So just think about how a, a, a husband, uh, how a husband can love many different women in his life. He can love his mother, his mother-in-law, his sisters, his female friends, his female fellow church members, but he reserves a special covenantal love just for his wife and for her alone. Well, in the same way, God so loves the world but he reserves a special covenantal electing love for his bride, for the church, for Christians. So listen to Malachi refer to this covenantal electing love in verse two. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? So God's affirmation of his love for Israel is immediately doubted and immediately questioned. How so? How have you loved us? See, they don't see any evidence of this kind of love. Instead, what they do see seems to suggest that they've been forgotten and unloved. We already mentioned their diminished role on the world scene. They were impoverished. They were struggling to recover as a nation. And in particular, they were struggling in contrast to their neighboring nation of Edom. You see, the reason why the Lord makes reference to Jacob and Esau is because their descendants are the Israelites and the Edomites. See, by Malachi's day, there was great resentment against Edom, specifically for how they had assisted the Babylonians during their siege of Jerusalem and how they had celebrated Judah's downfall and how they tried to profit off of their defeat. If you read the book of Obadiah, the Old Testament prophet book of Obadiah is entirely dedicated to condemning the nation of Edom, the descendants of Esau, condemning them for their ill treatment of their ancient relatives. Now, eventually Edom itself was was driven out of the land, uh, out of their own land by the Nabataeans. That's an ancient kingdom of uh, of, of people that that built the uh, the, the famous city of Petra. That's in modern-day Jordan, you know, the city that's built uh, within the cliff, uh, uh, the cliff walls. Uh, that, that was the nation that took over Edom. But by this uh, time, by the time of Malachi, the Edomites had appeared to, to, to regather and to rebuild. And, and they're on the rise. It says that they're ready to rebuild. You can just hear their hopefulness if you read verse 4. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins and it goes on to, um, uh, the verse goes on, but right there, he's at least quoting the optimism of the Edomites, that they will rebuild their ruins. And so you see here that in addition to the ongoing resentment of Edom, the Israelites were growing jealous of Edom's apparent prosperity. It appeared as if they were on the rise, and it, it appeared as if God has overlooked how they had treated Israel, overlooking how the Edomites jeered and cheered during the Babylonian siege and captivity. So where is his justice here? Where is his love? Lord, you say you have loved us, but how? How have you loved us? Well, before noting any specific evidence of his love in their day, the Lord recalls back to a time in Israel's history when Isaac and Rebekah were expecting twin sons. While in the womb, Scripture says that the twins struggled with each other. Rebekah was told that two nations were represented within her womb. The brothers and their descendants, the Israelites and the Edomites, will struggle with each other, and the elder, we're told, will end up serving the younger Now, it turned out that Esau was born first, and then Jacob. But as their stories unfold, we learn that the prophecy came true, that God's covenant promises are given to the younger, to Jacob and to his kin. So Malachi goes on to say, Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Now, you might be wondering, how in the world does that answer the question, how have you loved us? Because when they're asking the question, how have you loved us, the Israelites were probably expecting God to list some current examples of his love, but instead he brings up his ancient choice to love the younger of two twin boys. But how does that answer the question, how have you loved us? Well, friends, consider with me three things that we can learn from that particular answer. First, It tells us that the Lord loved Israel freely. He loves us freely. You know, God doesn't have to love anyone. Some mistakenly assume that because the Bible says that God is love, that means that somehow his job to love every single person as if he has no choice. But what we learn in God's answer to Israel is that when he loves you, he chooses to love you Freely, he freely chooses to do so. His choice of Jacob proves that very point, because by cultural custom, Esau the elder should have received the greater blessing and the the the, the, the 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 greater inheritance. So it would have been natural to expect the covenant promises that God had made to their grandfather Abraham to flow through Esau in his line, and yet, and yet the Lord elected Jacob the younger, in order to demonstrate that his electing love is always freely given. He's not obligated by cultural custom or natural law to have to choose to love one over the other. It was God's free choice to love Jacob and to hate Esau. Now, I know that word hate might throw you off. You might be able able to accept the idea that God freely chose to love someone but you might have a hard time with the idea of God freely choosing to hate someone. And that's understandable if, it's, if it doesn't sit right with you. And that's why commentators will uh, quickly emphasize that hate in this particular context conveys not a personal animosity uh, from God towards someone, but it just conveys and implies a rejection. A rejection implied by, by not being chosen. But I know even still, you might be bothered by the fact that God would reject Esau even before he was born. Because it doesn't seem fair that he you know, starts off his life already rejected while, while his brother starts off life already loved. But that's where the second thing that we learn from God's answer here is very helpful. Second, the Lord's response tells us that he loved Israel graciously. He loved Israel freely and graciously. Because we have to keep in mind that both Jacob and Esau were born into this world under the curse of sin. They came into this world in the same condition. That means they both started off life deserving not God's love, but his rejection. And so when you read their story, you'll, you'll find that point confirmed. Neither brother is portrayed in a good light, in a positive light within the story. So when Esau is rejected, he's getting what he deserved. Nothing to complain about there. Nothing unfair about that. But when Jacob is loved, now that's when it's surprising. He's getting what he doesn't deserve, he's getting grace sure, you, you can complain still about that, but just realize what you're complaining about. You're complaining about God's graciousness and his generosity to show grace to people that don't deserve it. We we, 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 we wouldn't have recognized the graciousness of God's electing love had he waited for these twins to grow up um, and to, to, to become adults before he, he chose between the two of them. You see, it's it's by choosing to choose Jacob over Esau before they were born, before either had done anything good or bad, God is making clear that his electing love does not respond to human action, or, nor is it conditioned by human behavior. That means he's not looking for anything intrinsic within an individual before he decides to love. Now, that's consistent with the way that God explains his overall choice of Israel throughout the Old Testament. So um, Deuteronomy, for example. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 to 8, which actually we read earlier in in our home worship, reminds God's people not to get puffed up with pride just because they're his treasured possession. Listen to what Moses says. This is Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Listen to this. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. So what that means is that when God sets his love on you, when he chooses to do so, it's not because he sees something intrinsic within you deserving of that love. In fact, if he were to look within you, he would see that you actually deserve his hate, his antipathy, his his wrath, all because of your sin. But thankfully, when God chooses to love He's looking within himself to his own gracious freedom, the love whomever he chooses, and to the particular oaths and covenants that he has made with us. You know, the only thing that binds his love is his own will, his own promises, which he never breaks. So how does God love you? Friends, he loves you graciously. In a way that you simply do not deserve. Now, third, third, the, the Lord's answer in verse two tells us a third thing. It tells us that He loved Israel mysteriously. He loved Israel freely and graciously, and mysteriously. Now, I understand if it's not satisfying to be told that God freely chose Jacob over Israel. I mean, over Esau. Uh, without any obvious or observable explanation. I, 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 I know we, we want an answer. We, we want a reason why. And so we just assume there must be some reason that explains why Jacob was the right choice. But Scripture doesn't reveal it. I'm sure God has his reasons, but Scripture you know, doesn't tell us. Now, at the same time, Scripture never portrays God as, as being arbitrary or capricious in his decisions But Scripture never promises that God will reveal his reasons or explain himself to us. Now, perhaps he will do so when we see him face to face. But until then, well, until then, friends, we're just going to have to learn to embrace an element of mystery in the faith. And that is one of those mysteries of the Christian faith. Why did God choose me? The answer is a mystery. Why did he choose to set his electing love on me and not on this, this other person who eventually ends up dying in unbelief? Why me? Well, the answer is a mystery. Now, I, I know your gut response might be, well, you know, isn't it because I accepted Christ and he didn't? But that just begs the question, why did you Choose to receive Christ while he didn't what's the underlying difference between you as a believer and the other person as an unbeliever? now, if you were to say well it's you know because I, I came to realize that I was a sinner and he didn't well then you're suggesting that you are more spiritually sensitive or, or, or spiritually aware than the other guy if you say well, it's you know, because I, I humbled myself, and apparently he didn't, then you're suggesting that you are more humble. If you say, well, it's just because I, I was willing and he wasn't, well, then you're saying you're more willing. You see, you can't avoid it. As long as you make something in you or something about you, the reason why you're a Christian and the other person isn't, then in the end, you do have something to boast in over the other guy. You're more sensitive to spiritual things. You're more humble. You're more willing. Even if the difference is ever so slight, there's still something, something for you to boast in. But of course, that just flies in the face of biblical teaching. Ephesians chapter two, verse eight and nine states, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of work, so that no one may boast. So if you have given yourself even the slightest reason to boast, then you've contradicted the gospel of grace. The only way to have a gospel where no one may boast is to not look within yourself for the reason why you're a Christian and someone else is not. Instead, you resign that reason to the mysterious and sovereign will of God, whom we are told in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, chose us in Christ. He set his electing love on us through Christ, not just before our birth, but before the foundation of the world. Just let that sink in. If, if you're a Christian, think about what this means. The God of all creation, in eternity past, before time began, before he he flung the universe into existence, he thought of you. He had you in mind. He freely and graciously set his love upon you. He chose to love you. Not because he knew that you would one day grow to be so lovely or lovable. No, God chose to love you. Because he chose to love you. I know that sounds like circular reason, circular reasoning. You know, I love you because I love you. I know it feels like a cop-out. Like it, it, you know, people, when they say that, it sounds like you just couldn't think of a reason why. But I guarantee you, friends, I guarantee that's the kind of love that all of us actually want. That's electing love. It's the kind of love we're actually all looking for. Nothing is more comforting or reassuring than the kind of love that has its own inner logic. Husbands, husbands, especially you newer husbands, let me give you a tip. If your wife ever asks you, why do you love me? Think very carefully before you begin to, to rattle off a bunch of reasons why. And ask yourself, what would actually be the most comforting and reassuring answer to that question? And I would argue that any reason that you give her that is grounded in some characteristic in her could still lead her to doubt your love for her. If you tell her, well, honey, I, I love you because you're just so smart. You're just so funny, or you're 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 so caring then there could always be those nagging, gnawing questions in her mind. What if I change? What if I'm no longer the same person uh, l- later on in life? Or, or, or what if I'm just not as smart or not as funny or not as caring as I was before? Or what if he meets someone smarter, funnier, more caring? Brothers, I hope you see that the most comforting, reassuring answer that you can give her is to just tell her, Honey, I love you because I love you. I choose to love you because I choose to love you. And that's the kind of love, I would argue, that we are all searching for. And that's the kind of love, my friends, can be found in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In the Christian faith, God loves you, not because you're so spiritual, not because you're so humble, not because you're you're such a good person. No, he loves you because he loves you. That's his electing love. And it is so reassuring and comforting because it is rooted in the very nature and character of God. He chooses to love you. I love what Charles Spurgeon had to say about this kind of electing love when asked whether he believed in this idea of God freely choosing to set his love on people before they're even born before the foundation of the world. Listen to what Spurgeon had to say. I believe the doctrine of election because I'm quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. I am sure he chose me before I was born or else He would never have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. Amen. That's a good word. That helps us understand God's electing love and its free, gracious, and mysterious nature. But you know, friends, simply understanding this love is one thing, but cherishing God's electing love, well, that's, that's far more important. And that leads to our second point. After explaining the origin of his ancient love for Israel, the Lord goes on to proclaim the fate of those whom he has not chosen to set his electing love. And a stark reminder of God's holy anger and his commitment to perfect justice is going to help the undeserving objects of his electing love to cherish that love all the more. So let's look back at verses 3 to 4 in our text. Recall with me that Israel is doubting God's love for them since their economy is still depressed, and yet Edom seems to be on a road to recovery, which is infuriating considering how these ancient relatives had the gall to kick Israel when she was down at her lowest point and to try to profit off her back. And yet, listen, listen to verse 3. But Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. So the Lord goes on to remind them that Edom Edom didn't get off scot-free. They, too, were eventually defeated and displaced. And even though they seem to be right now on the road to recovery, God says he's going to halt that progress. Listen to verse 4. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may rebuild, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. So, Friends, the point here is that a nation can exert all of its effort to try to rebuild its ruins, but in the end, God is the one who is sovereign, and he determines whether that nation will be restored, and and apparently it will not be so for Edom. It may appear that they're getting away with their ancient treachery and their unholy joy over Jerusalem's uh, destruction and Judah's defeat, but here in verse 4, God reaffirms his commitment to love and justice. And so when they, they hear that God has not forgotten what Edom did to his people, to his treasured possession, and that the Lord will be angry with them forever, those among Israel who were growing spiritually apathetic and disillusioned with serving God are suddenly now reassured that God's ancient electing love for Jacob has not changed, that he loves them still. His love for Israel has never wavered. It stayed the same throughout the ages, even in seasons of despair, which really, which really were seasons of discipline. But, you know, even with this reassurance and recognition of, of God's electing love, There there is no reason for Israel to gloat now over Edom's downfall or to boast in her status as God's beloved. Hearing God say that Edom will be, quote, the people with whom the Lord is angry forever, hearing that should just humble God's people since they know that that's actually what they deserve. The Lord would be angry with us forever, but for the grace of God. If he had not, before the foundation of the world, freely, graciously, and mysteriously set his electing love on us, then, then we too would be a people with whom the Lord would be angry forever. We would deserve to be cast into the fires of hell to suffer the torments of eternal condemnation. With the Lord angry forever at us. It is This reminder of God's absolute commitment to justice that helps his people to to really cherish the electing love that God has set on us. We can rest assured that all the wrongs, all the injustices, all the evil will be confronted with perfect justice. Really in either one of two ways. Either judgment will fall on individual perpetrators of evil and, and, and justice will be carried out in the eternal fires of hell or judgment will fall on Christ the Redeemer and justice will have been carried out on his cross. If you're a Christian, but right now apathy is something that you're dealing with, then what you really need is to let those words in verse 4 To sink in for you. They will be called the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. I I really do hope those words are unsettling for you. I, I hope they bother you because that is what you and I deserve. That is what you and I have been rescued from, all because the Father set His electing love on us before even time began. And now, in the fullness of time, he proved his love by sending his beloved son to live the life that that we were designed to live and then to die the death that we deserve to die. And when the time was ripe, he put his spirit in you as a guarantee of that love so that you can be sure you will never lose his love. This kind of love from God, this electing love, needs to be understood by Christians. But, oh, more importantly, it needs to be cherished. And now, once we're able to understand and cherish God's electing love, well, then, really, we're ready to fulfill the purpose of our election. Friends, keep in mind that Israel was chosen from among the nations and blessed that she might be a blessing to other nations, that she might be a witness to the world of the glory of the Lord and to share his love. And so that leads to our third point. Once you understand and you cherish God's electing love, then you are compelled to share it. Look at verse five. Your own eyes shall see this, the proof of God's electing love, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. So notice there with me how the result when Israel uh, starts to see God's electing love over them and his rejection of Edom all with their own eyes, the result is, they notice how they don't go on to say, how great are we? You know, how, how superior are we compared to all the nations, especially the Edom? You know, notice they go on to say, How great is the Lord, especially among the nations. You know, some criticize the doctrine of election by suggesting that telling someone that God specially chose you is only going to boost your ego and and foster some kind of sense of superiority or exclusivity. But according to verse 5, the opposite effect seems to happen. Learning of God's electing love doesn't seem to foster an insular mindset within Israel or exclusive thinking. Rather, it seems to foster a global, universal mindset. Election reminds God's people that the Lord is not some kind of tribal God who only works for us, who only serves among us. No, the Lord is great beyond the border of Israel, great among the nations. According to the Old Testament, especially within the prophetic writings, Israel's election as God's chosen people, as his treasured possession, was never a grounds for boasting, but rather a call to missions. Election was never intended to compliment the chosen, but rather to humble them and to compel them into action. Christian, I really do hope that you find great comfort and reassurance in knowing that you are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. But if God's electing love only serves to benefit you personally, to simply encourage you or to stir you up out of your spiritual apathy, then I'm afraid you're you're, you're missing the bigger picture here, missing the bigger purpose behind your election. You're, You're only half applying this doctrine of divine election. Once you realize how the God of the universe loves you freely, graciously, and mysteriously, the natural response should be Here I am, O Lord, send me. What would you have me do? Where are you sending me? What should I do? So, my friends, I ask you, what would he have you do? What is he calling you to do in your life right now? How has he chosen you? How has he called you? How has he set you apart for a task to make his name great? Beyond the borders of your own household, beyond the borders of our church, what does he want you to do? What is He calling you to do? Oh, that's that's a great question to be asking ourselves, to be asking amongst ourselves as we continue on in this book of Malachi, hearing God's voice, hearing in the ways that He is trying to stir us up out of spiritual apathy and lethargy, to serving Him, to being on mission with Him. I look forward to getting into this book with you in the weeks to come. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the book of Malachi, for this chance to be able to study it. Thank you so much for this reminder right off the bat that we are loved in Christ. That before the foundation of the world, you loved us in Christ. You set your electing love on us. Help us to truly grasp its significance. We might experience the security and the comfort and the reassurance of that electing love. And at the same time, it might compel us and stir us up to be on mission, to be on mission to take your love beyond our borders, beyond our comfort zones, into the nations, into the world. We pray this, Lord, in your sovereign name, in the name of Jesus, amen.